0: Well, if you would turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. And t- before we start, to you new grandparents, congratulations to the new parents and others. That's great. We have Ezra, you know, a teacher of the law, right? Biblical name. And then we have beetle because his initials are vw for people who don't know what that means you know it's a vw bug and beetle that's what we used to call it so his new nickname is beetle so i don't know or bug whatever y'all want us to call them. this is great romans chapter 8 says in the introduction i mean as far as this is concerned. What I wanted to share with you is this. Um, Pastor J.C. Ryle once said, the absence of accurate definition is the very life of religious controversy. And as you look at our topic today, who is the for us all? In other words, did Christ die for everyone? That's one of the most scandalous topics among evangelicals. And I think that reason is is because we've not been given good definitions. And most of us don't test our presuppositions against the whole of Scripture. So I want us to look at this topic in our passage today. We're going to look at it from the Scripture... And why the Reformed viewpoint holds that Jesus died for the elect. That's where we're going this morning. So I want us to look at verse 32 through 34. It says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all thanks? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So I want us to look at that verse 32. You can see from your slide, you want to follow these today. Hopefully, there's the question is, who are who is this us all? In other words, God gave him up for us all, and he gave us all things, basically. We need to understand and look at some definitions. We want to look at, first of all, universalism, inconsistent universalism, and particular atonement. So, in the next slide, you will see, what is universalism? Universalism is that God, it was God's intent to save everyone so, that the death of Christ means that everyone will be saved in the end. This is kind of a, un- a liberal viewpoint. Christian Universalists exist, believe it or not. They share the gospel, but they believe that everybody in the end is going to be saved because God is loving and merciful. There is no hell, there is just only heaven, and therefore you are going to go because God is so loving. When we look at this and understand it, there's a different aspect of that. It's what we call inconsistent universalism. Christ died for all people without exception, but that only some of those for whom Christ died actually will be saved. This is what we call uh, a view that the Methodists will hold, that Arminians will hold, a lot of Baptists will hold. Uh, Catholics, a lot of, uh, probably most evangelicals. Now, what does that mean? Well, there was a doctrine that floated around just real quickly that talked about prevenient grace. That man, and this is what John Wesley believed, that man, as a result of the fall, only Adam inherited original sin. But his offspring did not. In other words, grace was given enough... For people now to have original sin wiped away, and man has the ability to cooperate with God in having or professing salvation. Now, I want you to notice a key term cooperating. Let's break that apart. Co operating, in other words, it's dual. What he's saying is that God provided Jesus on the cross, but you only get saved if now you come into the picture and you think and go, oh, that's a good deal. I see that, that's gonna keep me out of hell. So now you operate in your own ability that God has given you because grace has gone before you, prevenient grace, in other words, and it's enabled you and everyone in the world to be able to receive or to reject God. So therefore, this is called inconsistent universalism. Now, in the Reformed faith, what we have is what we call a particular atonement. Some call it limited, but really that's not a good word for it because every viewpoint limits the atonement. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. What particular atonement believes is that Jesus died... For a particular group of mankind, his elect. How many of those are there? Myriads and myriads and myriads of thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands. One of the definitions that you've probably heard is that heaven is only going to be filled with a few people. Because Jesus says many are called and what? Few are chosen. But When you go back to Revelation, what do you have? Around the throne in Revelation... John says there's myriads and myriads and myriads of people praising God. So in your definition, understand that those who believe in particular atonement understand Christ died for his elect and by that death it secured salvation to those whom God predestined to be saved. We spoke about that uh, earlier. Brother uh, Brother Philip gave us a great little sermon dealing with that in my absence. And so, you know, God predestined those to be saved. Who believes that? Presbyterians, Reformed Baptists, some Lutherans, some Anglicans, Congregationalists, the Reformed Church of America. There are hundreds, if not thousands and thousands upon these churches throughout the United States. Believe it or not, and probably you probably won't believe me, but go look it up. Southern Baptist that began, began in 1845. Almost every person, every preacher that began the Southern Baptist denomination believed in particular that's just what they believed. And it fell out of favor when revivalism came to America in the form of Charles Finney. But that's another sermon for another time. Well, what is this issue at hand? What's the big deal? Well, it's the nature of the atonement, okay? It's the nature of the atonement. What did Christ achieve through his death? And we want to talk about that, and I'm going to give you some theological terms, but they're not hard to understand. The first one is expiation. We derive this from the scriptures. Here's what it says. The cleansing of sin is expiation. The taking away of guilt through the payment of a penalty or the offering of atonement. It's taking it away. You remember the scapegoat back in Exodus where they're told that they are to take the blood of the sacrifices. They brought a scapegoat. The priest would lay his hands upon the goat And then someone would take it out to a hillside and shoo it away. And people would sit and watch. And guess what? The goat would disappear on the other side. It was representing that their sins, their guilt, had been cleansed because of the offering. And now it's been sent away. And they would visually see that, that it was gone from them. Expiation. Basically means the cleansing of sin, taking away guilt through the payment of a penalty or the offering of an atonement. We find it in verses 1 through 9, uh, 1, 9, which we just said in 1 John. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and to what? Cleanse us, expiate us from all unrighteousness. Hebrews nine fourteen. How much more will the blood of Christ... Through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God. Purify. What is purify? If you purify something, you take away what? The impurities. You are being cleansed. Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So, what did Jesus do in his death? Expiated our sins. But also, he is the propitiation Most of you do not use that word in your English language. You're not driving down the road talking to your friend and start talking about propitiation. Most of us don't do that. But what is it? In other words, God's wrath has been appeased, satisfied. Therefore, where God was at enmity with us, now he is for us. We talked about that, right? If God be for us... Who can be against us? Expiation, if you think about it this way, was the act. And because we've been cleansed, now we are propitiated. In other words, God's wrath has been removed as well. It's taken away and now we are at peace with God. That's what it means. So we have expiation and propitiation. What does it say in the scriptures as we look at that? It tells us in John 1. Did I skip one? I think I skipped one. Read that one right there. For all have sinned, fall short of the glory of God. But notice what he says Whom God put forward as a propitiation a satisfaction of the anger that he had towards us because we rebelled against him and sinned against him. Then we go to 1 John 2, 2, my little children. I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, some will take that and they will say, sins of the whole world. See right there? That means that everybody has their sins forgiven. And if that is true and God paid for those sins, then everybody's sin is forgiven. That's important to think about now because we're going to see in just a moment that might not be true. Okay? Okay? So, the question becomes what did God or Christ do? He paid the penalty for our sins. He cleansed us. He took away our, our guilt. He appeased the wrath of God against us. So, God, in His justice, must punish sin, or He would not be a just God if He didn't. Who became our sin? Jesus Christ bore our sin, became our substitute, paid our ransom. Therefore, those for whom Christ died are set free. There is no charge against them. Verse 33, what does it say? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Basically, Paul's saying this, no one, because it's God who justifies It is God who justifies. Now, remember that those from whom Christ died are set free because he is our substitute. Now, what does substitution mean? Here is something I I read from Tom Wells, who was a writer for Reformations and Revival. He said, suppose Bill Jones appears to be drowning and Joe Smith jumps into the lake to save him. Here are some possible results. Both manage to save themselves. Both drown. Joe saves himself and Bill, or Joe saves Bill but drowns in the process. Only one of these is substitution, it's the last one. Joe Smith dies in the place of Bill Jones. Bill Jones then has been freed from that death death, and he is alive. I want you to keep that in mind. Please keep that in mind. Bill Jones, because he got saved, because of the sacrifice of Joe, Bill is alive. Now, what was Christ to us? He was our ransom. He was our substitute. Matthew 20, 28, you know what it says. It says, says, I did not come to be served but to serve and give my life a ransom, a payment, a substitute in your place, basically, for you, for many, it says. So this is what we need to understand. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God And if one person dies in the place of another, then the second person cannot die. Now, I want you all to keep those things in mind. So, what's the logical conclusion if we really believe that Jesus died for everyone? Logical conclusion is this, as stated by Pastor John Owen. If Christ paid the penalty for every sin of every man, then no man can ever suffer everlasting punishment for his sins. Their penalty has been completely borne. In other words, their penalty has been paid. It's already been paid at the cross. We are therefore free because Jesus Christ was the expiation and the propitiation for our sins. That means everybody's saved. Let's go home. Brother Philip, you want to go home? Let's go. No need to be here. Everybody's going. Based upon the conclusion, if everybody is saved, that Jesus died for everyone, then his expiation and the propitiation applies to them, to everyone, because that's what Jesus did On the cross so what did he actually do the question comes up and begs this question what did he accomplish did Jesus actually provide salvation for his people or did he potentially provide salvation for everyone is it actual is it potential There's where we have the definitions and we need to understand them. So here's some arguments about this. If you say that Jesus died for everyone in the same way that the death of Christ, then you're saying the death of Christ didn't save anyone, it potentially saves them. It has to, it potentially saves them. Now, what is the problem with that? It changes the nature of the atonement. It means that the atonement becomes limited in its effectiveness, in its power, in what it accomplished, in what it accomplished. In actuality, man saved himself. He saves himself. In other words, think about it this way. If he did not actually save anyone and its potential, then what we have is a God who says, I have given my son for everyone. And this expiation and this propitiation, this cleansing away of sin, this appeasing my wrath is only potential. There's something you still have to do. You still have to respond and cooperate with me. So I've put it out there. So therefore, you now have the opportunity to receive Christ and I'm just going to wait on you and I'm going to pray and hope and hope and pray that you'll accept me. I, I just don't buy that. I just don't buy it, okay? What else does it mean if we say that Jesus died for everyone? Here's what it means. There are people in hell then that had their sins atoned for on the cross. If Jesus paid the penalty for everyone, why are there people in hell? It has to mean if Jesus paid the penalty for everyone, then there's people in hell that he atoned for on the cross. Get this, there are people in heaven that had their sins atoned for on the cross. The same thing happens whether you're in hell or heaven. Jesus atoned for it. But Christ did not make a full and complete payment to God for the sins of people. He only potentially provided payment. That's what we have to say. We have to say this. If Jesus says, I was a propitiation, expiation for your sins, it's really not full and complete until you do something until you respond in a way. I kind of like what John MacArthur says. He says the atonement must not be understood as some general potential atonement, or Jesus should have said instead of, it is finished, it is begun," or, boy, I I hope this works out for a lot of folks. But here's another argument I want you to think about. If Jesus died for... Uh, for all yet some are in hell then a double penalty and punishment is taking place jesus paid their penalty but since they are in hell they're paying their penalty as well that's a double penalty payment and if jesus took their punishment yet they are in hell they are also receiving punishment as well that's a double punishment Jesus took their punishment, but it really didn't apply to them. They're in hell, so therefore they're having to be punished for their sins. That's what it means, a double punishment. I now want to go back to our text, just real quickly. It says this, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, will he not also give us all things with him? Here's the translation. If God gave you his son, he will also give you all things God guarantees it to happen because of his son's death. He argues from the greater to the lesser. God has given you the greatest gift of all. So therefore, he's going to give you all things. What all things? We talked about that two weeks ago. Everything from chapter 1 to chapter 8 that he said he was going to give to us, justification, sanctification, righteousness, peace with God, all these things are given to Us. But that begs the question. If God gives all things because of his son, but some are going to be lost, how does this guarantee the giving of all things? They can't. How in the world do they receive that? Paul's argument falls apart if some are lost and have to believe that either God is giving those in hell all things and in heaven all things. Both get all things. But we know that's not true. Or everyone just must be saved because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. But in context, in context, Paul is speaking to the elect. We knew that from verse 29 and 30. Those whom he foreknew, those who he foreloved before the foundation of the world, as it does say in Ephesians 1, 4, where it tells us we have been chosen from the foundation of the world. He says that he predestined. That means he previously determined that. Then he called us through the Spirit of God. He justified us based on the death of Christ as our substitute, and we are glorified. We become the glory of God. And also, we will be glorified fully when we leave this earth. So when we look at that next Verse 34 says, Who is to condemn? Jesus is the one who died. More than that was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who is indeed interceding for us. So here's the question. If Jesus died for all, yet some are in hell, does it make sense that Jesus is interceding for them? That doesn't make sense at all. And actually... We hear the words of Jesus. What did he say? In his high priestly prayer in John 17, he says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me. That means there's a number whom you gave me, not everyone, but whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. And in verse 9, he says, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. There's a number of people, millions upon millions, if not trillions, billions, whatever, as time began that Jesus has been praying for because they were his. They were ones that the Father gave to him. And he says, I am not praying for the world. In other words, the people that are not his chosen, I'm not praying for them. So we have to go back. Then it's Jesus died for all, yet some are in hell doesn't make sense that Jesus is interceding for them so I want to break this down as we're moving on just quickly here's three options Christ died for some of the sins of all men or Christ died for all the sins of some men or Christ died for all the sins of all men okay which is true we're going to do a little statement here Christ died for some of the sins of all men. Well, we know this cannot be true because if there are any sins that Jesus didn't die for, then we still have to bear and pay the punishment for those sins. Therefore, all would be lost. So we know that's not true. Christ died for some of the sins of all men. But the second point is Christ died for all the sins of all men. That can't be true either. Jesus died for all, then all would be saved. And why aren't all people saved? Some will say, well, because of unbelief. But didn't Jesus die for the sin of unbelief? He did die for the sin of unbelief. But if someone says, no, Jesus didn't do that. But if a person says no, I can't get this thing to go right, and it just messed up, didn't it? Did I go? De-da-da. Okay, forget that, okay? Here's what it says. If a person says no, that Jesus didn't die for unbelief, then they must say that a person can be saved without having all... Of their sins forgiven and atoned for by the death of Christ. They left that one out. That doesn't work either. So, what do we have to come to the conclusion? The conclusion is this Christ died for all the sins of some men. This is, I believe, the scriptural conclusion to which we arrive Jesus died for the elect. He died for the elect to cleanse them from sin and to appease the wrath of God. Now scripture, I just want to give you just a few. Where do we derive this? Matthew one twenty one. Angel comes to Mary, says to this, and Joseph says, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. Matthew 20, 28, which we referred to a while ago. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Revelation 5, 9. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation this is a a great verse notice it says you ransom people for god from in other words that little word greek word just means out of it's the same little preposition that's used when we call ecclesia. when you use the word ekklesia for church it means ek out of chosen ones out of, they are gathered together to be a church separated as the people of God. What he says in Revelation is this, you ransom people for God out of every tribe and language and people and nation. He does not say he ransom every person for God from every tribe and language and people and nation or you can change it this way, all tribes and all language and all people and all nations have been ransomed. Does not say that. It says that he ransomed a people from every tribe for, every, for God from every tribe. So there are individuals that were predestined in every tribe and language and people and nations to be his people. And also from Matthew or John 10, 26 through 30, you know it well. Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees, and he says, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow them. Follow me, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them from my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and my father are one. Let me stop and just tell, tell you just this real quickly. When we're talking about that whole, par- that whole passage, Jesus saying, I am the door of the sheep. Understand, in those days, the shepherds would take their sheep to a sheepfold. It would have a little door that was open and those sheep would go in. But it just wasn't one little flock. The shepherds would come together and there would be several flocks in the sheepfold. And before that door, the shepherds would lay down and they would sleep to protect the sheep that are in the sheepfold. When it was time to go, The shepherd would stand and he would call his sheep. Mark, boom, that little sheep would pop up. David, boom, that little sheep's head would pop up. Diane, it would pop up. Jason, it would pop up. He would name the sheep and he would call them and guess what would happen? They would come. But it wasn't all the sheep, just Those that were his. And that's why Jesus says to these Pharisees, Look, you are not my sheep. You are not those who are called. You are not those that have been chosen by me. You do not know my name. You do not follow me. You do not know my voice because you're not my sheep. And this is what we've said all along. Goats never become sheep. They don't. They are sheep. Sheep, sheep, sheep are the ones who follow after Jesus because they hear the voice, they know Jesus, they follow him because the Father has given the sheep to the Son. And we go also to Acts 13, 47, 48, it echoes the same thing as Luke wrote this down. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Now listen to what it says as many, that means there's a limited number, as were appointed to eternal life, believed. They didn't believe first and then were appointed to eternal life. That is what Arminians will believe. That is what we call self or or semi-Pelagians believe. In other words, they believe we still have to cooperate with God and that faith comes first And then we have eternal life. That's not what this says. As many as were appointed to eternal life, because they were appointed to eternal life, they believed. So here's the progression. The Spirit of God, if God has called his own to himself, those who are predestined to life, When they hear the preaching of the word of God or the testimony of the word of God, if they are one of the chosen, one of the elect, God, spirit, renews and regenerates their heart, opens their heart, because they have been appointed to eternal life, and they respond to the gospel with repentance and faith, which is both a gift of God, and they have eternal life, they believe. So regeneration will precede faith, resulting then in eternal life. All these come from the Father and to God alone uh, alone be the glory because he is the one that started it. He is the one that initiates it. He's the one who confirms it and seals it by his Holy Spirit. And it's not us that do it. It's not of the will of man. Understand this. John 1, chapter 12, verse 13. But to all, or some of your translations say, as many who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. In other words, listen. What comes first? God regenerates opens the heart to believe because he appointed them to believe and what they do then they have been made willing to believe beforehand tells us that no one can come to him a statement of ability we don't believe that we are given prevenient grace that beforehand that we all now have the ability to choose Christ. We don't believe that. We believe that we have the inability to choose Christ until he opens our heart through the Spirit of God. Now our wills have been made willing. And there's many times we're accused of those of us who are reformed and saying, well, we're just, you just think we're puppets. You should, God's got us on a stream. No. What we do believe is this. If we are born again, not by the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but as of God, God uses the means of the preaching and testimony of the Word to open our hearts to the gift of the Holy Spirit and the gift of repentance and faith, and now He's made our willers willing. Does that make sense? We are now willing to exercise our wills because He's opened it up and given us the ability to do so, not beforehand. He's given us the ability to do so. That's why we believe that Christ died for the elect. Now, we believe this because we believe that Jesus actually saves his people, not potentially. He actually does. We believe that the death of Jesus on the cross secured it. How? How? by removing the guilt and appeasing the wrath of God for His elect. We believe that God foreordained those who would be regenerated by the Spirit of God and they would be granted repentance and faith to believe. And we believe that all that the Father has given to the Son will come to the Son for salvation. Irresistible grace. We don't believe that we, as a chosen one, that you will resist the grace of God. He's just too powerful for that. He is going to draw you by his irresistible grace. Now, when will that drawing come? I don't know. It may be when someone's four. It may be when someone's 94. But if they are God's elect, guess what they're going to do? They're coming. They're coming. And he guarantees it and he secures it. Now let me say this in closing, just real quickly. Because I believe our passage is dealing with that very thing. If God's for us, who can be against us? Who's going to bring a charge against the elect? No one. Why? Because God justifies. Who's going to condemn us? No one. Because Christ died for us. And has given us all these things. You may say to me, okay, what do you do? Well, here's what we do. We obey what the Bible says and we give a universal call, what we call a general call to all people. Why? Because God tells us to do it. Right? So what's the big deal? If they come, when we give a call... I don't believe in this election stuff but if they come aren't they going to be saved? Well if they call upon the name of the Lord? Yes, in repentance and faith, yes. But if I give a universal call and I believe that the elect are going to come, what's the big what's the difference? What's the big deal? The big deal is this. Who gets the credit? Who gets the glory? Is it God alone that started and initiated, or is this something that man has to do? That puts, if it's, the man has to do this based upon his own intellectual ability, that he sees the offer of salvation, and he goes, you know what? I think I need to add that to my resume there because I really don't want to go to hell, and it seems plausible to, to be able to do this, and if that's all I got to do is ask Jesus into my heart, then all I got to do is just come forward and do. ask Jesus in my heart. That means man shares the glory, cooperates with God. So the big deal is that God is the one that offers it. God is the one that convicts the sinner. God is the one who opens the heart. God is the one who applies the death of Jesus Christ to that person. And then the Spirit sanctifies and seals them and sanctifies them. And folks, what happens in that regard is that God gets the glory because he actually saved someone like us. Think about that. Why did God choose you? Would you have chosen you? Knowing you? Wives, why did you choose your husband? After you got married and find out what they were really like. Why'd you do that? You just did, right? So we can walk in grace. We can say, oh, I'm I'm fortunate that my wife chose me. (laughs) I am. But here's the point I want to say. Why would God choose any of us that rebelled against him? That sinned against him? That blasphemes him? That creates idols in our own hearts? Why does God choose any of us? We can only say it's by His grace. And that takes all, everything away from us and then places it rightfully upon God, that He was the author and the finisher of our faith. And that causes us to bow in humility, especially when we know ourselves. Especially when we know ourselves. And, Father, and, and folks, it also changes our methodology because doctrine will determine your direction and if you believe that Jesus died for everyone then what we must do is do everything we can to see if we can draw them in with the hopes that they will hopefully choose Christ that makes us manipulators because if we can just get them down the aisle get them in here Get them saved. Let them make that decision. Then we become manipulators of what God has initiated in the first place. Our that everybody, everybody is going to get saved. Our methodology changes. Our witness changes. Our humility changes when we believe. When we believe that God died for you is elect now dear friends here's a point again and I'll close with this who are the elect I don't know God hasn't revealed that to us all the names of the elect what he has given us to do is to share it with everyone share it with everyone I remember a story from my seminary professor, who was probably one of the only Reformed professors at Southwestern Theological Seminary, where I attended. He was a church history professor, and he came in one day. He was he was uh, tremendously strong in his belief, Reformed belief, and he told us a story. He said, "This there's a kid next door." that I just despise he picks on my children he picks on everyone he's mean he's gruff he uses foul language and yet my wife has invited him to come to church and shares Jesus with him all the time in fact he said she had the audacity to ask him to ride with us every Sunday and I just would go to church looking back in the mirror looking at this kid going, hate this kid and so after church one Sunday after this kid had gotten in trouble whatever he just lamented the fact that he had to drive this little reprobate as he said to church every Sunday and have them influence his kids and she looked him square in the eye and said what if he is one of the elect and he said I looked at my wife and I went Oh, he had forgot he had forgotten that he is to have this universal call this general call to everyone and to witness to everyone because they may be the elect that's what we are to do too so folks don't let this doctrine scare you don't let it be misconstrued among you but let it be understood that God uses the term election throughout the Scripture, and we're going to be dealing with it some more in Romans chapter 9 when we get there in a couple of weeks, which we will. So don't let it scare you. Don't let it frighten you. Don't believe everything you read on the Internet when it says, all you terrible Reformed people. Don't believe those things. Study it, look at it, and see what the Scripture says. Lord, we pray, Lord, and uh, thank you again for this opportunity to look at your word. Lord, we pray, Lord, and uh, praise you and thank you. Lord, that you knew your plan before the beginning of the world. Lord, that you execute your plan. And sometimes we don't understand it. Lord, we believe that you are calling people from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation, And, Father, that those people will come because you have ordained it to be so. But help us, O Lord, to extend the call to everyone to trust Christ and to be saved. For you do tell us, whosoever believes in you will not perish but have everlasting life. Thank you for that life. Thank you that we can worship you this morning. We give you praise and glory and honor for these things and we pray these things in Jesus name